Let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless our study as we turn to the book of Psalms and we look at Psalm 14 and 15. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. And Lord, you've ordained for us to be here tonight for this particular lesson, for these particular Psalms, because you want to speak to us. Lord, as we open up the Holy Bible, it is your very word that you have laid out before us. Speak to us, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart that we would see these words as yours. Lord, help us to conform to what your word says and not conform your word to what we want. Speak to us truthfully and plainly, plainly, giving us the courage to live out your word. We put this time in your hands. We ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I put these two psalms together is because each of these psalms is a portrait. It's a portrait of two types of people. Portraits are help, they're helpful, right? Portraits are, are great. Remember Polaroids when those used to be a thing? Uh, now everybody can keep them on their phone and carry them around. It was much harder to carry Polaroids with you. But it was a lot more fun because, I mean, you take a picture and then you do this for the next half an hour waiting for it to, to develop. And, uh, yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> they came out before me, just, just saying. <laughs> they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I believe it. When I go out to eat, you can ask my wife. If the menu doesn't have pictures, we go to a different restaurant. I do not like to read what I'm going to eat. I like to see a picture of it and an example of it. If they could include a picture of somebody enjoying it, that's even better. Um, I will not order anything that does not have a picture. If I can't see what it looks like or understand what it's going to be presented to me as, um, I'm not getting it. I'm, I'm not adventurous in that sort of way. Portraits reveal details. Portraits allow us to evaluate, to examine when we have portraits of something, what we can do is we can use them for comparison. Tonight, we're covering these two psalms, and they're a portrait, two portraits, and they're created by less than a thousand words. Each one is less than a thousand words, and altogether, it's less than a thousand words. One is of a fool, and the other is of a righteous person. As we look at these portraits, I want you to understand that the purpose of David writing these psalms and God speaking through David tonight is not so much so that we can identify these in the person next to us or anybody else around us. God has given us these portraits so that we can identify which of these portraits we are more in comparison with and adjust accordingly. So if you guys would start with me, starting with uh, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who is wise and who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread, and they do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord 
is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Psalm 15 continues on. He says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost. Who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Two portraits of extreme opposites. And I believe that there's only two portraits because you're either one or the other. And sometimes in our life, we are a little of both. Hopefully trying to get to become more of the other. We're going to take a look at the first portrait. The first portrait, as I said, is of the fool. And we're going to look at several different things. Number one, I want to look at what the fool says of God. If you want to know if you're foolish or not, what are your thoughts of God? David starts off in verse one. He says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. He says, they're corrupt and they do vile deeds. That word fool in the Hebrew is the word nabal. It means a person who lacks good judgment. The person who lacks good judgment says in his heart, and we know in scripture that the heart is the seat of all decisions. It's the place of volition. It is the seat of all decision for what we will submit to. In the heart, says there's no God. Literally, in the original language, the word there is, maybe in your Bible, it's in, in italics. That means it was added by the translator to kind of give clarity. That means in the original language, it's not there. So really, literally, it says no God. Those of us who are parents here, we are all used to this tell your kid to do something, you know it's really for their good, and they turn around and they go, no. They're foolish, right? They're not doing what, what, like, they don't understand we have their best intentions in mind. That is what's going on here. Literally, this is either saying no God, it's flatly saying there is no God, God doesn't exist, or it's no God, saying no to God. To understand this a little bit more, the meaning behind the word Nabal, from which the word fool comes, it's not an intellectual fool. This is not someone who lacks intelligence. This is not someone who doesn't know how to think through things. This is a moral fool. Because this one morally rejects God. David doesn't bring into light those who aren't smart enough to figure God out. No one could. 
those of us who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and, and have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and even have that illumination, we cannot figure out God. We never will. He is the infinite. Our minds are finite. But David has in frame those who simply reject God. You see, a fool is a fool for rejecting not God's existence, but his rule in their life. It is the one who says, God, I got this. I don't need you. Stop messing with my life. The fool says, no God for me. And the fact that the fool says this in his heart indicates the truth that the fool knows God is there. He's not denying the existence. He knows God is there, but he rejects it in his heart and his life. I like what David Guzik had to say about this. He says, one may believe in God in theory, yet be a practical atheist in the way they live. You can acknowledge God. You can acknowledge the truth of God. You can acknowledge the, um, the fact that what you see in this world has been created and there is a creator. But live your life in such a way that you deny the creator. The first step of someone who is a fool or someone becoming a fool is to deny God, is to reject God. The fool denies their responsibility and their accountability to him. That's the whole reason why they're like, no, God, you have no say in it. I don't owe you anything. I don't have to answer to you. And that's really a foolish thing to say because if God, there's a creator and he's created us, obviously we answer to our creator. He doesn't want there to be a God. He doesn't want God to reign over him because he wants to live how he wants and how he desires. He wants to be his own God. But here's the truth of the matter. Denying God will not erase his existence. That's why it's foolish to deny God, because just by saying no doesn't deny it. Same way, if you jump off a building and say, I deny the existence of gravity, it doesn't matter. You're still going to hit the ground pretty fast at 8.32 feet per second per pound or something like the, with a force of per pound. I forget physics, but I, I know that it's 8.32 feet per second that gravity has a pull on us. Denying God does not erase God from the universe and it does not remove God from his sovereign throne. The desire to think that they can do this is what leads to standing as a fool. Romans 1.22, Paul said this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is the, the guy who goes, you know what? I'm just going to deny that there's a God. That's how I'll get around this. I'll just say he doesn't exist. And, and Paul says he thinks he's being smart, but all he's doing is showing his foolishness. Henry Bosch has pointed out the following instances of God's careful and marvelous design. Nobody could deny the existence of God without being foolish because the earth rotates on its axis at approximately 1,000 miles per hour. If it was just 100 miles per hour, our days and nights would be 10 times longer and our planet would alternately burn and freeze. Under those circumstances, no vegetation whatsoever would be on the face of the earth. 
the size of the earth. If you take the earth and you made it as small as the moon, the power of gravity that I was just talking about would be too weak to retain sufficient atmosphere for our needs. But if it were as large as Jupiter, Saturn, or Uranus, extreme gravitation would make human movement impossible. We would all be stuck exactly where we were at. We would be like trees, planted where we are, stuck where we are planted. If we were as near to the sun as Venus, the heat would be unbearable. If we were as far away as Mars, we would experience snow and ice every night, even in the warmest regions. If the oceans were half their present dimensions, we would only receive one-fourth of the rainfall that we get now. If they were only one-eighth larger, our annual precipitation would increase fourfold and the earth would become a vast uninhabitable swamp known as Dagobah. Just kidding, that's my Star Wars reference, okay? Just throwing that out there. Now, take water. Water solidifies at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the freezing point on the Fahrenheit scale. If you want to do Celsius, it's zero degrees. Celsius is much easier to understand. Zero and 100. Freezing and boiling. Fahrenheit is 32 and 212. It would be disastrous if the oceans froze at that temperature, however. The amount of thawing in the polar regions would not balance out and ice would accumulate throughout the centuries. Soon there would be no thawed out water. So to prevent such a catastrophe, the Lord just saw it fit to throw some salt into the ocean to alter its freezing point. Now to assert all this happened by mere chance and probability is intellectually dishonest. No one can intellectually deny the existence of someone who has made us a privileged planet with perfect, pristine conditions for human life. The, the mere amount of chance and possibility makes it improbable to have ever happened in an in, in absolute uh, unable to happen. Scripture says that those who deny God and reject God are fools. They're not intellectual fools because even the intellectual knows that God's there, but they're moral fools because they think they can deny their accountability to him. It's not a question of intelligence. It's a question of morality. So we're talking about the fool. The fool is one who has no morality. They're corrupt and they do vile deeds. There's no one who does good. When you have no moral integrity... You're corrupt, vile, and you have no good that comes out of your life whatsoever. And, and here's the thing. This is why it's so important. Because what a man believes determines how a man will act and behave. And I use man interchangeably. What a woman believes determines how a woman will act and behave as well. What mankind believes determines how mankind will act and behave. The fool is corrupted and free to be vile in mind and heart, leading to actions of the same, corrupt and vile deeds. As a practical atheist, separated from the wisdom revealed in God's word, corrupting and spoiling all that he does. Now, Hebrew, like English, has a lot of words to describe those who are unwise, right? We have a lot of synonyms. Um, in Hebrew, they have a lot of words that correspond to our simple, silly, simpleton, fool, madman. The word that I have used before, Nabal, embraces foolishness 
but it also indicates an aggressive, perverse personality. Folly and foolishness expressing itself through evil acts. So the fool is not only one who denies God, but one who denies God while doing what they want to do, morally reprehensible acts in comparison to God's moral standards. There was a man named Nabal whom David knew. In 1 Samuel 25, we are introduced to him when David comes around and Nabal acts a fool. And essentially what he ends up doing is angering David, who is king at this time. And David says, you know what? This is going to cost you your life. Luckily, Nabal had a wife who at the time, her name was Abigail. And she stood in and said, hey, don't mind Nabal. He lives up to his name. He's a moral, reprehensible fool. He's, and, and literally the, the sentence that she says, his name means stupid and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. And so she kind of eases, she saves Nabal's life because she acts morally correct as opposed to his stupid, um, just brutish way of being. And here's what happens. Denial of God's reign in one's life bears the proper fruit that is rotten and corrupt conduct. When you deny God, that is the fruit of your life. That is what will come out. That, it's always what will come out. So that's what the fool says of God. What does God say of the fool? God says of the fool... There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who's wise, who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So God looking down on all of humanity that has denied his um, sovereignty, his, his throne in their life, he looks down from heaven onto the human race. And I want to point something out here. Notice that man tries his best to forget about God and to relegate God to the corner of his life, but what's God doing? He's always mindful of man, always putting man before him to look and evaluate and to, and to look and seek through. God never turns away. God never forgets about man. God is always observing man, looking down upon the children of men. We, we learn this throughout um, Scripture, we learn in, in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, for the, Lord, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And the one speaking this tells someone who has been trying to ignore God, you've been foolish in this matter. You think that God's not looking. You think that God's not there. You're doing whatever you want to do. The psalmist again will write in Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all and he considers all their works. There's nothing that you are going to do on this earth or in your life that God is not going to evaluate and look at. As much as you want to deny that God has that rightful place, as much as you want to say, God, you have no right to look at my life. You have no right to speak into my life. God says, you're foolish to think that, and I'm still going to be observing it. I'm still looking at it. I'm still going to bring it up. 
And we remember that the Lord is constantly watching, especially over men as they choose to reject God. Remember, after the flood, God, as they left the ark, God said, go forth, multiply, and spread out over all the earth. And man said, no, God. And their first act of foolishness was they stayed together in Babylon, and they built what's called the Tower of Babel. And as they built the Tower of Babel, what happened? God looked down and said, now that they are together in one mind, there is nothing that would be kept from them. Therefore, let us go down and confuse their language. Why? Because God said, go forth and multiply and spread out throughout the earth. And they said, no, God. And God said, you can tell me no, but what I want done is what's going to be done. And so he goes and confuses the language. You know what happens? They stop being able to work together and they start spreading off. God has done such a great job of confusing language, we have a hard time communicating now even using the same language. So it doesn't matter if we say no, God. Then in Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought that their detestable acts were beyond the vision of God or that they could just relegate God and they didn't care about the consequences. But what ended up happening? God saw the vile, detestable things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, I'm going to destroy it. And it's believed that he utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah so completely that it became the lowest point on the face of the earth, where the Dead Sea is. He rained down brimstone and fire from heaven and destroyed it. Now the Lord is looking on humanity. Is he looking because he's a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass just going, I dare you to step out of line? No. What does it say? It, it says that as he looks down, he's observing. It says in, in Chronicles, he said, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God's looking down not to find the evil people across, like he knows where they're at. What he's looking down for is who's going to trust me? Who's going to be wise? Out of all the foolishness that I see, who's going to act differently? Who's going to be different from that? The Lord desires those who would have understanding by seeking God. You see in Proverbs 1, 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. That's why they say, no, God. Proverbs 9.10 is a, a parallel to that. It says, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It is impossible to have understanding while saying no to God. In denying and refusing to hear God, in denying and refusing to acknowledge God's seat on the throne, the fools, they have all turned away and have all alike become corrupt. There is no one who's going to say no to God that is still able to stand morally upright, straight, and any, any of that. Here's the twist. Here's the part that we need to look closely at this portrait. All have turned away and all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. By nature and practice, man is a sinner and a fool. And if left to himself, would never seek after God. And Paul quotes from this psalm, 
in Romans as he universally condemns both Jew and Gentile under sin. In Romans 3.10, he says, as it is written, as it is written in the Psalms, as it is written by David, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. The, the truth of this is to understand that at the very basic level, we are all the fool. At some point in our life, we have said no God. We have denied God. We have ignored God. We have said, no, I will do it my way. And we have all fallen into sin and corruption to the point where we have corrupted ourselves beyond the ability to stand before God righteous and justified. And as we take a look at that and understand that, we need to feel the weight of it, feel the weight of what God is saying. Everything that you have done is corrupt. Everything that you have done is vile. As it says in other areas of scripture, even our best righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before God. That's how good our righteousness is in ourselves is. Because at one point we have rejected, we have turned away, we have rebelled against God. And that's the fool's way. This is the fool's way, the fool's lifestyle. It says, with evildoers, will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread, and they do not call on the Lord. And then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. And when we see words like evildoer, we say, that's not me. Because we all have in our mind what evil is compared to us. But you have to understand this portrait is what God says. When someone rejects God, when someone rebels against God, when someone says no to God, that's evil. God is all good. So to reject and say no to good is to say yes to evil. And so he says, will evildoers never understand? Well, understanding only comes from acknowledging God. As long as you just deny, reject, and push away God, you will never understand. He says, they come to, this, to consume and destroy my people, God's people, as they consume bread and with the same ease of conscience. I don't know about you guys, but I know before I became a Christian, I know before I gave my life to God, I didn't really look kindly upon those who have given their life to the faith. I was like, oh, look at those guys. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we can um, knock them down to make ourselves feel better. Oh, look at them. They have their crutch. Oh, look at them. They need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. Look at me. I can stand on my own two legs. Uh, the truth of the matter was none of that was true. What's true is that we all need Jesus. It says, then they will be filled with dread for God is with those who are righteous they're going to be filled with dread. And you know what? when they're going to be filled with dread? When it's too late, when, when judgment comes. In, in Ecclesiastes, another book of wisdom that comes from Solomon, 
is written, and it says that eternity is written on their hearts. And here's the truth about eternity that's written on our hearts. We have to give an answer. There's something beyond, you're not just going to cease to exist at death. There's something after, and we're going to have to face up, we're going to have to fess up. And it says that they do not call on the Lord. So they're not asking the Lord for help. They're filled with dread on what's going to happen because they're going to understand that God is only with those who are righteous. God demands righteousness. But yet here we are, fools, vile, evil, corrupted. And so they lash out. They attack the people of God. They're attacking God because God's present in the midst of his people. I want, I want you to understand that if you're here today and you are in Christ, God is in the midst of you. God is in the midst of his people. His presence is around you. The way of the fool is one in which they're opposed to God and actively attacking him and his people. They're not right with God. They're not pleasing to the Lord. They desire to frustrate the plans of people. They desire to frustrate the plans of those whom they oppress. But here's the truth. They may oppress and frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but no one ever has ever, not even once, frustrated the plans of the Lord. That's why it says, you sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed. Our Lord is not oppressed. His plans are never frustrated. Then it continues on. Everywhere in scripture where you see, but the Lord or but God, it's this great turn of events. They may frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but God, but the Lord is their refuge. Maybe you're here tonight. And that's exactly what it is. People who deny God, people who don't live for God, people who are, are wicked and vile in the things that they do, they frustrate your plans. I know some people here that have had plans and all of a sudden it got frustrated and it, and it doesn't seem fair and it seems like they're coming against them. Understand, they may frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is there in that and he is your refuge. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. They haven't frustrated his plans. More than likely, they're working within it. And this is what Joseph meant when he spoke to his 12 brothers or his 11 brothers when he saw them again. And he said, what you meant for evil, God turned it for good. That's what it meant in the gospels when it says that he takes beauty from the ashes. The Lord's plans are not frustrated, especially his plans to rescue and save his people and to be a refuge for them. And that's when David decides to talk about deliverance. You're looking at the portrait of the fool and you're like, he, he's, he's telling me that I'm, I, I'm this way. He's telling me that we as all people, we're fools. So what do I do? Deliverance. If you're not here this evening knowing the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus, I want you to understand that as you see yourself in that portrait of, this, of the fool, you don't have to stay there. There's deliverance. David says, oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Jerusalem, the Mount of the Lord. What's he calling forth to? The future prophecy of a Messiah who's supposed to come to Zion and deliver them. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, 
Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Calling on God and, and God's people to be joyous as they consider that salvation is coming and the Lord is providing it. Understand this, it's not possible for us to get to a place of quiet trust and confidence by ourselves. We cannot come to a point in which we trust God after having rejected him and saying no to him so much on our own. If we rightly read this psalm, we come to the conclusion that we are of the same position as those who cry out, no God, and that unless God had made himself and his ways known to us, we would never say yes to God. How does he do this? It's through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one whom came from Zion to provide deliverance. Jesus Christ has revealed himself and made deliverance possible for us. In John 1.16, it says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. No one seeks after God. No one knew to look for God. No one knew what God looked like. No one knew where to find God until Christ came. When Christ came, he revealed the Father. Paul talks about wisdom, contrasting God's true wisdom with the supposed wisdom of this world. This world likes to bask and think that it is so wise, so smart, so developed. The world regards the gospel as foolishness, but the gospel allows those who are foolish for not knowing or seeking God to know God through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 30. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us who were foolish for rejecting God. And he became our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. You do not have to stay foolish. You do not have to stay as the fool. God has provided deliverance. It's found only in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to escape foolishness and to come to the wisdom and truth that is found in God. The other portrait is the righteous, the righteous way. What's the righteous way? In Psalm 15, verse 1, it says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Complete opposite of the fool, right? In this psalm, David says, who can dwell in the Lord's tent? Who can live on your mountain? Now, word translated dwell would be better understood as sojourn, as its sense is in that of a visit in which the visitor would be the recipient of all of that Eastern hospitality that the ancient world was known for. 
You see that gracious hospitality of the ancient world, a guest was sheltered from all harm. If you were a guest in someone's house, it was their life now given to make sure nothing happened to you. And in that, the person was inviolable and all of his wants and all of his needs would be met. David asks, who can dwell in your tent? You see, to abide in the tent of the Lord is to abide in his very tabernacle. To dwell in the tabernacle is to dwell and to live and be in the presence of God. And David is saying, who can be in your presence, God? Who can live in your presence? Who can settle on your holy mountain? God, who will dwell with you and with whom will you dwell? Who can draw near to God? Who can worship God? Who can fellowship with God? David has in mind, who can live that life that is lived before the presence of God, walking in close fellowship because the heart, mind, and life are all in line with God's heart, mind, and life? Who can fit this bill? And he says, it's the one who lives blamelessly. It's the one who practices righteousness. It's the one who acknowledges the truth in his heart. Clearly, the only person that can do that is not the foolish person. It's the righteous person. The one who lives. The one who walks and behaves blamelessly. Free from guilt. I, sometimes when we come across that in the scriptures, we'll, we'll come across it in the New Testament also when you look at the uh, qualifications for being a deacon or a uh, elder in church aspect. And it says, must be blameless. And we go, oh wow, they must not have anything that they've ever done wrong that anybody could ever bring against them. That's actually not what it means. If you think about someone who has been convicted of a crime but has served their sentence, they're blameless. For those of us who were once the foolish person but have been delivered by Jesus Christ, we are covered in his righteousness and therefore even in the things that we've done wrong, even in the things that we've done evil, we are blameless because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Blameless. It means free from guilt. That's what blameless means. And this person is also one who practices with the intention of carrying out and doing righteousness. And as, as they're carrying out and doing righteousness, they're also acknowledging, they're speaking out, they're upholding the truth in his heart. This is the one who does not deny God to live as he wishes to live. His lifestyle is blameless. His actions are blameless. And he lives in obedience to God, maintaining a life of integrity in step and line with the righteousness of God's standards, acknowledging the truth. The wicked and the hypocritical do not belong and have no place in the sanctuary, in the place of the righteous in the very tent of God. 
When you come to the tent of God, you have to already be clothed with Christ. What is this righteous portrait? Well, first, righteous speech. Verse 3, it says, This one does not slander with his tongue, does not harm his friend, or discredit his neighbor. This one does not slander. This means they do not attack a good name. They do not attack a good reputation without, in, in lies or even in that, you know, where you have to, you know what? I need to share something with you. You need to know about this person. I got I to gotta give you a couple of uh, things that you just have to be aware of. That's how we slander somebody. That's how we assassinate someone's character and their good name, and their reputation, and we do it with our tongue. And James has a lot to say about this in his epistle about the tongue and how it's an unbridled horse, and it's, it's just this rudder of a massive ship that forest fires are lit with the spark of a tongue. But it says that the righteous person doesn't do any damage with his tongue. That's a hard thing. Because even James himself said, if you, have contro- if you can control your tongue... Oh my gosh, you have like achieved, you have achieved that status. He doesn't harm his friend, performs no evil against his friend with his tongue. Have you ever had a friend who does that? Like they're, they're the best up front. They will sing your praises when you're present. If you were to leave a tape recorder behind though, man, to hear the things that they say when your back is turned. or to even discredit their neighbor. The upright and righteous, their life is known by the fruits of the inward reality of a person. The righteous is righteous because they're righteous in every area. Their speech, their, the way that they live their life, how they obey God. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is the uh, tail end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Everybody remembers Matthew 7, 1, because that's the one that says, um, don't judge me. No matter what I'm doing, just don't judge me. Paraphrasing, of course. In truth, it says, judge not lest ye be judged, for with what judgment you hand out, it will be handed back to you. But at the end of that, Jesus then goes on to talk about a good tree. He says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. If you're righteous, you cannot speak unrighteousness. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. If you're unrighteous, you won't say righteous things. You can't speak it. And so every tree that doesn't produce good fruit should be cut down and thrown into the fire so that so you'll recognize them by their fruit. That's how you know righteous from unrighteous. What is their speech like? What is the speech like of the people that you are around? Are they righteous or are they not? What is your speech around other people? What is your speech around different groups of people? Does your speech change? Jesus then says in Matthew 12, 34, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. He says, I tell you that on that day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
if you have never said the words, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. If you have never bowed down and said, Jesus, I submit. If you have never bowed down and said, I need you, Jesus, then all the other words that you have ever said in your life will be used to judge you. If you have used those words to call out for Jesus for salvation, admitting that you are a sinner, confessing your sins, and repenting of them and calling on his name, you'll be judged by those words which cover you with his righteousness. So the righteous person, picture with righteous speech. Also picture with righteous conduct. Verse four, it says, this person, the righteous one, despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, and does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. The righteous despises the one rejected by the Lord. If the Lord has said, this person is no good, the righteous says, this person is no good in what they're doing. This doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel. doesn't mean that we don't share the truth. But we don't also say, hey, it's okay. The Lord knows really what you're trying to do. As long as you're sincere, it's okay. You see the difference between the two? The other one says, man, according to the Lord, this person's law. You need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you're saying is not righteous, is not acceptable to God, but he sent his son to die on the cross, and if you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will have salvation. The one who who despises the one who's rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord. Those who call upon the name of the Lord Though they speak out with vile things, we may correct them, we may reprove them, we may bear one another's burdens and as we see another in sin, pick them up so that they are not overtaken permanently by those sins. Being cautious also that we ourselves do not fall into the same temptations. I find it interesting that phrase, who keeps his word whatever the cost. Because I can read that in two different ways. And as you go into the original language and try to break it down and look at it, it doesn't necessarily tell you who his is. And so you can read it two words. Righteous conduct is kept by the one who keeps his word as a matter of integrity. Whatever I say, whatever I say I'm going to do, whatever I say is going to happen, whatever, if I keep my word, I live by integrity. But... Even at great cost of self, this is like, I will pay you for this. And then you pay him for that. You live by your word, even if it comes at great cost. Um, There's an example of this in Joshua when they made a deal with these travelers who came with moldy food that they had kept for forever to make it look like they came from a long distance. But really they came from their next door neighbors whom God said, don't ever make a treaty with them. And they made a treaty with them. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't turn around and go, oh, I know we made a treaty with you, but now we're just going to destroy you. No, they said, okay, you deceived us. We're going to live by our word. Um, but you're now going to serve and, and you're going to be all of our woodcutters and our water gatherers for our worship and our temple. They kept their word and it came at great cost to themselves. 
The other way to look at it is the one who keeps God's word no matter the cost of self. This is the one that's harder for us. This is the way I read it, is that it's more, it's less about our word. I don't think God really cares too much about our word, but he cares more what we do with his word. This is the one who's totally dependent upon keeping God's word and won't live according to anything but God's word. If God's word says it, that settles it. This is the one who's not going to say, well, you know, in business, the ends justify the means. Everybody else is doing it, so we need to do it also. You can't get ahead if you're not playing by the same set of rules. And they make all sorts of excuses to ignore God's word. But then there's those who follow God's word and they follow it, even at great cost themselves. They're like, you know what? My IRS tax form says that I need to pay taxes on this money if I got this money. So I write it down and I pay the taxes on it, even at great cost to myself. Honesty comes at a great cost. I don't just say that because it's tax season either. That's just the normal way in which people start to blur the lines on what's acceptable or not. It's like, well, was it a business expense or was it not really a business expense? Um, it could have been both. And so are we going to live by God's word? Are we people of integrity that live by God's word? God, for the righteous person, outlines the righteous person's life and choices. Now, the uh, righteous person also does not seek to exploit others or pervert justice. You don't exploit others by going, hey, so you're in a really terrible time. I know you really need this money. I will give you the money. I just need you to sign this promissory note saying that you will pay me back 433% interest. In case you didn't know, that is the common interest rate for any of those uh, what, what are they, uh, direct deposit advances. Any of those payday loans. As Christians, as righteous ones, as people of God, really, we don't necessarily loan money. We're to consider it a gift. If they choose to pay it back, that's great. But consider it a gift and don't charge them interest. And don't pervert justice by taking a bribe. Justice is never done because someone has greased the palms of the wheels of the machine of justice. That has never happened. But you know what the promise is for the one who lives that pictured righteous lifestyle? As much as it comes at a cost to live by the word of God, as much as it comes at a cost to not exploit others and to be fair in everything that we do, it says the one who does these things will never be shaken. It doesn't matter what catastrophe hits. It doesn't matter what thing comes up in their life. Quick example of this, one who lives by righteous speech. When someone calls you out of the blue and says, hey, we need to talk, your conscience doesn't go, oh no, what did I say to this person that made him upset with me? We start going, I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder what they're struggling with that they want to talk to me about. Instead of going, oh no, they want to talk with me. What did I say wrong? What did they overhear me saying? What did I say to somebody else? Who, now it's gotten back to them. You're not shaken when somebody says, hey, we need to talk. 
You're not shaken. You never lose your resolve. You never waver in your stance. If you live according to God's word, you're never shaken when anything else comes against you because God's word tells us what? The world's going to come against us. It's going to be against us. It's going to hate us. We're not shaken because the world hates us. We live by God's word and we know the world's going to hate us. We expect it. So when it happens, we go, yep, God was right again. And we remain firmly grounded and immovable. The righteous not only enjoys fellowship in the Lord's presence in his tent, but will also be a recipient of divine blessing and security. You see, the idea behind never being moved is that this person shall be a guest in the tent of God forever. Never have to worry about God throwing you out, God getting fed up with you. That, oh no, that's the last straw. I'm done with you. That's not God. You live according to his statutes. You live according to his standards. You live according to his word that says, find faith in my son whom I sent to die for the sins of the world and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be accepted in me, justified and righteous for eternal life forever. The psalmist in Psalm 61 verse four says, I will dwell in your tent forever and take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And just so you don't think it's only a Old Testament promise and you know how sometimes we get confused and we think the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Here's the New Testament also. It says, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Remains forever. In conclusion, I don't want to close with a pithy quote and I don't want to close with, what I want to do is as the worship team comes back up, I want you to know that during this song that we're going to sing together, if the Lord has been speaking to your heart, if as you've been looking at these portraits, where you see yourself at, allow God's spirit to have its work in your heart. Maybe for the most of it, you're like, you know what? I am that foolish person. Come to God and confess it. Say, God, I don't want to be foolish anymore. You look at the righteous person, you say, God, I'll never live up to that. You know what? We can't. We cannot live up to the righteousness of God. You know what we have to do? We have to come and we have to fall at the cross of Christ and we have to say, Christ, I, I can't live righteous like that. So I need to come to you and I need to ask forgiveness because I keep falling short. I need your forgiveness. I need your strength. I need to have your righteousness covering me. What I don't want us to do is to see these two pictures and go, wow, none of that applies to me. None of that's for me. Or even worse, to say, you know what? I can't wait to take these two pictures and I'm going to go home and I'm going to share it with my brother. I'm going to share it with my sister. I'm going to share it with my spouse, my mother, my father, everybody else but ourselves. Because if you are here tonight, the Lord revealed these pictures for us to look out for ourselves. And so I would pray, and I believe that the Lord is leading us to pray that he would deal with us individually so that we can move from one portrait, the foolish one, I'm going to give you guys the answer, the foolish one, to being the righteous one. Not in our own righteousness, but because we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet, Father, revealing who we are before you. Father, you don't do it necessarily to shame us, to make us feel less than, but you do it to call us to repentance, to say, I need you to understand that you do not meet up with the standards required, but you haven't left us where we're at. You sent your son to die on the cross for us because you wanted to provide the opportunity for forgiveness. You wanted to provide the opportunity for those who would come in faith at the foot of the cross and call upon your son's name to be able to dwell with you forever. And even more than that, in Christ, you make us brothers and sisters of Christ. You bring us into your family that we would dwell in your house forever. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts right now. Reveal to us where we're at. Reveal to us what you're calling for us to do. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to give us the strength to call upon the name of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.